Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Hey, Michael here. Hope you had a great 4th of July holiday. We took a little bit of time off, so we are running a replay of one of our favorite conversations with Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor. But in the meantime, I wanted to remind you to subscribe in whatever podcast app you use to Blazing Trails as we've got some great new episodes coming. First, we have a couple of episodes about Web3 and crypto, and then we're kicking off a three-part series on the future of marketing recorded at our Salesforce Connections Conference in Chicago this last June. You'll learn about building high-performance teams, ethical marketing, and much, much more. Okay, now let's hear from Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, first off, let's talk a little bit about Nextdoor and what drew you to the company. Well, that is an easy one. So (laughs) three things. First up, purpose. We are all about cultivating a kinder world where everyone has a neighborhood to rely on. And who doesn't want to do that in life? Mm -hmm. So the purpose of community really spoke to me. Super personal. I grew up in a small community. My mom and dad were effectively today what we'd call community activists. We didn't have fancy terms like that. They were the local nurse. My dad was the local personnel manager. Mm -hmm. So it felt like a coming home. Mm -hmm. Second reason was, frankly, it's a great business model, too. And so the ex-financier, research Mm -hmm. analyst in me, loves businesses where you can connect great business models to great purposes, and Mm -hmm. then they drive each other. Because Mm -hmm. now you've got a flywheel of cash flow that allows you to keep growing a business. You grow that business, that purpose and impact get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And then finally, people. Um, Normally, I put people first, but I had to get to know them. But I love people who join purpose-driven companies because they tend to run through walls for you because it's almost vocational for them. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the case since joining Nextdoor and the team that I've added since we since I joined. We've gone from 200 people to 600 people. And I just see more and more of that purpose coming to the fore. So it's super fun to go to work every day. Yeah. And it's a great time to be there. Nextdoor is growing like crazy yeah. and, and doing interesting things. You know, I'm curious um, you know, if there was an insight looking back if there was something that would have changed your career trajectory, was there something that happened along the way that made you think you wanted to do something different? Or how, how did you make some of the choices you made along the way? That's a great question. I always call those the sliding doors moments of life when, who knows, thankfully life is not an A-B test, so you don't actually know what the alternate would have been. Mm-hmm. I'd maybe go to one experience. So when I was in my early 20s, I was an engineer in college, one of the few women doing engineering. Mm -hmm. And I did an internship with Ashanti Goldfields in Ghana. Um, So I was a 20-some-year-old showing up to this gold mine, very male. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing experience on one hand because I actually saw engineering in the real world. And I was so inspired by that. On the other hand, frankly, it was super hard being a woman in that very male environment. And I came home to the UK and kind of said, you know what, that is not a job for me. I cannot be successful. You looked up, there was the whole, you can't be what you can't see. I really couldn't see anyone look like me. So I was like, can't be that. Mm -hmm. And so I pivoted into, I became a consultant, then became a banker. And it took a while for me to come back to that kind of engineering route, the kind of creativity, the innovation of of creating things. Mm -hmm. And when I did come back to it, I also came with the lens of how do I become a role model? So when people look up, 
they actually see people that look like them. I have a 16-year-old daughter, super important to me, that she believes that women can absolutely be CEOs and be leaders and manage big companies. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like at the time I didn't realize how much it pushed me away. But in hindsight, I think it might have added more fire in the belly mm-hmm. to where I am today. But it took a while, took a couple of decades, frankly, mm-hmm. to get back to that place where mm-hmm. I wanted to embrace being more of an only um, in a particular environment and to get back to that kind of more, much more technical mm-hmm. um, background that I always was me. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how did that feel when you looked and you saw, hey, this isn't for me, mm-hmm. And but you had put all the time and effort into <laughs> becoming that? <laughs> what was the feeling you had? It's hard. It's really hard because, you know, no, when you strive, you know, you've been that person in life in some ways where you've always been taught to strive and to kind of hit and to, to finally say enough, like I can't do this was actually a bit of an odd experience. And I felt like, am I, you know, who am I letting down? Frankly, in the end, you're probably only letting down you because you get all caught up in your own brain about all the other people. But there was a feeling of, oh, um, I can't do that, and not a good feeling mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, again, today when I mentor others, I often tell them, take that energy, that feeling. It's actually not a negative feeling. Mm-hmm. It's it's true energy into your body right now mm-hmm. to say, okay, what are the other ways that I can pursue the first principles that I'm trying for here, right? Mm-hmm. In my case, it was that love of more technical, creative side. It was travel. Frankly, I loved being in other countries. I loved meeting other cultures and communities. So how could I take those first principles and bring them to maybe a different situation where I actually could be welcomed and could find that belonging? Yeah, I think I'd rather um, throughout your career, you should have three mentors. <laughs> yes. that you had said that, that you should have three mentors, you know, that you can bounce ideas off because it is, it is at those moments where you have a challenge like that. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's sort of a sink or swim kind of moment. Yeah. And that's when you go and look for that advice. Is that, is that your approach? That, that's right. And I think you've teased everyone on the, who are the three then? <laughs> Um, There are three maybe uh, headings I would give each mentor. One is a work mentor. Mm -hmm. Actually, there sometimes we'll even say have two. One, someone who's working with you currently Mm because they're in your context, they're in your situation. They can give you real-time feedback, which is such a gift. Um, Not, you know, the performance review that you write every six or 12 months, but Mm -hmm. literally in the moment, here was the situation, here's the behavior I observed, and here's the impact it had. Mm -hmm. Um, I find people used to work with are very good too because they take a truth serum pill, the stuff they should have told you but was maybe going to be a bit awkward when you met in the kitchen later. Mm -hmm. After the fact, I think they're even better because they can be a little tougher, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of a work group. I think a second group is truly someone who loves you. Um, And why that group is important is because you can hear the toughest feedback because you know deep down how much they care for you. Mm -hmm. So I put my husband in that camp. Like he is a truth seer for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I, you know, was at Goldman and I didn't make partner and I was devastated. Mm -hmm. 
in that moment where he took me outside the building to walk around, it was literally six o'clock in the morning because I worked market hours. So did he. I'd just gotten the news. I was, you know, going back and forth between major tears and just blaspheming like the best an Irish person can do. And, you know, he kind of took me back and said, you know what? They have set you free. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? They Mm -hmm. just didn't make me partner. He's like, no, you're free now. Mm -hmm. If you still want to pursue this dream, go for it. I'll support you. But I've always seen you get way more excited about people then I see you get about stocks. That's what I did at the time. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think about this as a freedom moment? So that's a good personal mentor moment. Because he mm-hmm. wasn't trying to hurt me by saying, you're not good at your job, do something else. Right. I could actually hear the feedback. Mm-hmm. And then the third group is the scared, the living daylight side of you mentor, mm-hmm. which is a very apropos right now for this podcast sponsored mm-hmm. by Salesforce. Because <laughs> back in the day, Mark Benioff sat in that seat for me mm-hmm. where I'd met Mark because I was a research analyst covering Salesforce. Mm-hmm. At one stage during the great financial crisis, I downgraded the stock. And Mark may not remember this, but he used to alternate between, you know, kind of shouting at me for clearly being a moron and not realizing how great Salesforce was, which he did prove to be right on, or being a great sales guy and trying to explain how he could help me see the light. And and because of that, I really started to appreciate his perspective. And frankly, he appreciated mine because I was someone who was being critical, Mm -hmm. but backing it up with facts, figures. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, Mark became someone who sat in that mentor seat for me. So when I left um, banking mm-hmm. and said, okay, I'm finally going to take this plunge and become an operator, Mark was actually the person I talked to. Mm-hmm. I was going to go to a private company. Mark said, why would you do that? Like, come work with me because you'll get more experience in 12 months at a hyper growth company like Salesforce than yeah. you will in some small startup, which also he was right about. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, it was he's pretty good at that. <laughs> but he was someone I felt really anxious to reach out to. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, he was just so potent in very short bursts, right? These mentors don't have any time. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of stock them into submission mm-hmm. to give you those little moments. But they can be just so impactful in your career and in your life, Mm -hmm. frankly. So Mm -hmm. remember the three, professional, someone you work with, someone maybe you've worked with, someone who cares deeply about you, loves you, and someone who scares the living daylights out of you. Go aspire. Worst case, they say no, and you are just where you started. I mean, how do you get the, sometimes, you know, getting the nerve to ask that person, Mm -hmm. like a Mark Benioff or whoever Mm -hmm. it is, how how do you sort of summon the courage (laughs) (laughs) to do that? Because I think... We've all had those moments where you're about to send that email or you're going to make that call or whatever it is, you're going to walk up to that person. Where does that come from and how can you help people take that risk? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, it's starting with the fact of where you're at, they have, you don't have any interaction with them. So if they don't respond or say no, you're back where you were, you haven't lost anything, Mm -hmm. you're literally where you started from. So Mm -hmm. there's no downside at all. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I would be shocked. In most cases, people will do extraordinary things when they get a ping. Now, a couple of things to remember. Instead of just always asking, think if there's a way in where you're offering some help. Mm-hmm. So way back in the day at Goldman, I really wanted to get to know um, this woman, Suzanne Nora Johnson. She was, I think, the vice chairman of the firm. I can't remember her title, but it, she was super senior. And instead of saying, hey, Suzanne, I would love you to mentor me, I said, hey, Suzanne, I just moved into research from banking, as did you. 
I have some thoughts on where the research department could go, which, you know, in hindsight, not particularly humble. (laughs) I'd had about three months of experience. But, you know, she bit on that. And Mm -hmm. she, you know, she said, and I'm always myself today when someone a little bit more in the beginning stages of their career takes that shot and come, you know, sends me something that makes me think. Mm -hmm. I'm always going to listen to that. Mm -hmm. And so... Offer help maybe before you make the ask. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is to be incredibly flexible. Remember, these people are so busy. So in the case of Suzanne, I eventually found the way to her through her EA, through her executive assistant, who said, if you're willing to get in a cab with her because she has to go from her office to a client, Mm -hmm. that cab will take about 20 minutes, but you just have to go. The minute I call you, you need to run to that cab line and you need to slip into that cab with her. Mm -hmm. And that's when she will mentor you. That's when she will have that conversation. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to be super flexible. Today for me, I tell people I don't have a ton of time I really shouldn't make this time because there's so many other things I should be doing. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to come on a hike with me in my ears, mm-hmm. I uh, call you mm-hmm. and we'll walk for like literally you're going to get 15 minutes and then follow up. And not just with a thank you the way, you know, your mom or your gran or whoever mm-hmm. was taught you how to be polite. Right. But follow up with how the action, how the advice led to action mm-hmm. and how you're using it to pay it forward. Because mm-hmm. what we all love in life is that our impact can be amplified. Amplified. Mm-hmm. And so if in mentoring you, even for 15 minutes, I'm now able to impact three other people, five other people, that is a good force multiplication of mentorship. Well, you know, you mentioned going on a hike and taking a call. This is part of working from home that all of us have been doing, mm-hmm. which has had a big impact on Nextdoor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to hear about how the impact of this huge change that we've had over the past year and a half has had on next door on the business, how you're running it. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, it is definitely next door has risen to meet the moment. So pre the pandemic, I felt like I was talking to a lot of people why local was important. And we already know that when people come to next door, they typically come for three things. They come to give and get help. They come to get trusted information and they come to create connections, but connections that they can take from online to offline. So we're very different. Um, I'll give you an example. There's this amazing man, Sean, uh, who's based down in the South, black man growing up in a neighborhood, which started off predominantly black and over time it switched to become predominantly white. And Sean had that moment where he was like, oh my gosh, I'm the scary black man in my community. And that is not good. And we know that those are moments often where even neighbors talking on a platform like Nextdoor can have unforeseen consequences. Sean put out a call saying, this is how I'm feeling. And 200 plus neighbors showed up to walk with him in real life. And why I love that is you can always go to other platforms and start these movements that are very virtual. And yeah, thousands of people will like your comment and maybe they'll give you some emotional support. But there is nothing in my mind that can transcend that physical, in real life connection. To me, that's really how communities are changed, communities are activated. So those are the three reasons people come. What we saw in the pandemic is those three reasons really came into their own, right? Immediately, the pandemic started. Actually, the first thing we saw was people wanting to give help. So people were like, oh, my goodness, like, I don't really feel like I have personal agency right now over, you know, COVID-19. But man, oh man, I could go get toilet paper for you. Like, who out there needs that? It actually took a little bit on the other side to give people who needed help the confidence to ask. 
I founded personally, there was a help group started in my neighborhood. It's amazing. It has over a thousand people now. And the two people I was paired to, they both needed me to run to the pharmacy for them. Immunocompromised, wanted to be careful, not go outside their house. And in both cases, when I met them, they spent such a lot of time up front telling me how they were really independent and they they both were active and da 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 Like they really felt like they needed to explain that they weren't people who normally needed help. And I think that's also a human condition. It's actually hard to ask for help. But again, coming back to proximity, so much that can be done locally. And we've seen this around the world. We're in 11 countries. So if you're in Australia right now, you're just getting out of lockdown. If you were in the UK, people were rallying to come out and clap for the NHS. All around the United States, we just saw neighbors really stepping up to the plate. Trusted information, huge in times of uncertainty. So whether it's something like getting the right information from the CDC or whoever it was in the moment, think about any disaster. Right? We work a lot with organizations like FEMA. When a hurricane is hitting, I don't know, the eastern seaboard, you need to be able to go neighborhood by neighborhood. And of course, hurricanes change their minds, so they're not easy sometimes to track. But you need to be able to say, you are in this neighborhood, you need to evacuate. You're in this neighborhood, you need to get into the basement or wherever you can be safe. You're in these neighborhoods, you're safe right now, but how about you want to help? And then as the thing changes direction, you're constantly updating. So trusted information really became part of the zygist. And then finally, again, back to that, you know, in real life connections, a lot of that fell away during the pandemic, unfortunately. And so people were finding more virtual ways to connect. I'm blessed that tonight, since we're here in Virginia, I'm going to go meet up with a dad's group. We see a lot of mom's groups, but an actual dad's group led by this wonderful gentleman, Abraham. They started pre-pandemic because he felt this need for kind of actually male interaction, particularly men who had children, to talk about what it was like to be a dad. Through the pandemic, they kept it going virtually, and now they're finally back to in real life. But I think Nextdoor was an important way of helping people sometimes find their commonality. Like, I don't know, in that 15-person dad's group, I'm sure maybe they vote differently, have very different points of view on all sorts of things. But their commonality is they are all fathers trying to do right by their kids. And I think helping people find their tribe is a huge part of what a platform like Nextdoor can do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all seeing right now all the challenges around social media generally and the impacts and Nextdoor is, you know, it's one of the few social media companies that's grown a lot, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. post the, you. The, the previous sure players. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I imagine you're facing some of those same issues. How do you guys look at that? How do you look at negative social interactions on the platform? Yeah. So it has to start with trust. You all know this, right? It's something I learned also <laughs> talking a lot with Mark. If you don't have trust, you don't have anything. So mm-hmm. our number one core value is earn trust every day. Mm-hmm. But Nextdoor is really founded on trust. We're different from other networks because we have chosen a slower process for growth. So it's not growth at any cost. Number one, when you join Nextdoor, you have to be confirmed that you are a neighbor in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It also allows us to know that you have physical presence there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little harder to get in the front door, frankly. 
We're a guideline-driven platform. So from the get-go, we're quite clear with you that there's a way that we expect you to behave, to be part of an active, valued community of your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So things like be helpful, don't discriminate. There's actually a good neighbor pledge that Mm -hmm. you take as you come in the door. And again, number one rule in most tech platforms is the frictionless onboard. Like don't slow anyone down. We We slow you down. We Make sure you live there, and then we ask you to take a pledge before we even let you in the door. Mm -hmm. Because we're guideline-driven, that really helps with moderation because anyone on the platform can report content that's breaking those guidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, Then that reported content goes to a, a layer of volunteers. We call them our neighborhood teams. These people are incredibly special. They would have been my mom and dad. My dad is one of them, actually, in his neighborhood in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. But they're the the you know virtual instantiation of like these people that I grew up with in a way. They give so much to their community, and they often moderate content. And you need that local context. You know, if I think about Northern Ireland, you know, there's sarcasm is how we banter. It's mm-hmm. our our comedy routine. The things that get said in my neighborhood back there in my neighborhood here in the United States might not fly quite as well. It might be considered a little bit more hurtful. There it's hysterical. Here it might be hurtful. So you kind of need that local context. Of course, we use technology. So we look for things beyond obvious, like words that no one wants to see. We look for things like conversations getting more heated, right? Are people back and forth going faster? So speed is something to look for. Block capitals, lack of punctuation, mm-hmm. these are all signals that conversations might be devolving into you know, a much more heated argument. And then again, we slow people down. We do a lot of work with Stanford, an amazing woman there, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, who's literally the world expert on bias. Mm-hmm. And the thing she's really taught us is how do you slow people down and bring them out of their kind of you know, bird brain, their dinosaur brain, whatever you want to call it, back into their their frontal cortex Mm -hmm. where we learn how to interact in more constructive ways. And inside the company, I'm just curious, how is there a committee? How are you looking at this from a design perspective? I love that question. So we orient our company around what we call pillars. Mm -hmm. So there are five pillars in total. Um, Of course, we have a pillar around neighborhood value. We have a pillar around our customers, around businesses and organizations. But we have a pillar called neighborhood vitality. And that vitality pillar is where a lot of this deep work happens. So Mm -hmm. things like kindness reminder, that interstitial that slows you down. Mm -hmm. Things like the work we're doing right now around contentious conversations, how to nudge people to be more constructive Mm -hmm. when they're having a tough conversation. Mm -hmm. Because recall, what we don't want to do is there's two big no's for me. Number one is to create an echo chamber where you can just like all the people that talk like you, think like you, and suddenly you're like, well, the whole world agrees with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a real negative of tech, frankly. Mm-hmm. And the second um, thing that we don't want to have happen is that uh, people effectively stop having tough conversations, right? Again, if I go back to my Northern Irish roots, we were at war with each other. <laughs> we, we took it to an extreme. Mm-hmm. If you didn't get people around a table to talk about their differences, we would never have stop the war that we were in. Mm-hmm. So I really don't want to shut people down either. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think a neighborhood is a place where you can find, as I talked about the commonality, right? You can be the dad in the dad's group. You can be the parent standing on the side of the soccer field. 
That's your commonality. Mm-hmm. And so now if you disagree on, say, the street lighting, at least I know you're not like a raging moron. Mm-hmm. Like you might actually have a point of view that maybe I should listen to. You might not change my mind, mm-hmm. but it can create a lot of empathy. And then when I find actually moments of disaster, are often things that pull communities together, mm-hmm. create a lot of social capital that then can be utilized as communities get back to more normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that's one way that we use design with a capital D yeah. in the company, in that vitality pillar. And right. it's you have to be really explicit about it. I mean, do you find that you're actually balancing engagement, time on mm-hmm. platform, these traditional sort of you know social media metrics with the you know uh, needs you're talking about mm-hmm. and having to make decisions about that? Absolutely. So time on platform is actually a metric we don't look at. And I get asked about it from investors all the time. <laughs> I'll give you my my full throttle response. Okay. Two things. Number one, when people come to Nextdoor, they're in two different modals. So a utility model and a community model. Mm-hmm. In utility model, time on app would be ridiculous anyways because you just want to solve the problem as fast as humanly possible, right? If you come looking for an emergency plumber right. and I take you on a tour of the newsfeed, yeah. not super helpful. I have to say that's my primary <laughs> use case. That's okay. <laughs> come for the utility, but stay yeah. for the community. Okay. When you get to community, there is upside to drawing people in because mm-hmm. how are you going to get them to get to know each other in a group? How are you going to get them to talk about difficult conversations if they're not spending some time with you? Mm -hmm. But there is a drop-off point where we actually think it's to the detriment of communities if people aren't then going offline. Mm -hmm. So in the way, like I always feel inspired by, I think it's Patagonia, right, that doesn't have, did away with the whole concept of like a Black Friday sale. Mm -hmm. They closed down and said, no, go outside. Right. <laughs> Don't go shopping. Um, and it felt antithetical to like a business model. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for next door, right? If we lived to this higher purpose of mm-hmm. cultivating a kinder world where everyone is a neighborhood to rely on, we have to let people get out of a pane of glass and into the real world. Mm-hmm. So yes, we do make trade-offs quite frequently about engagement, mm-hmm. particularly near-term engagement, because everyone loves to look at a good car wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we not have that happen? Because actually over the long run, they don't embrace and love their community. They don't feel belonging mm-hmm. if all they see is kind of negative stuff going on. So it's it's I'm sound, making it sound very stick-like. There's actually a lot of carrot as well, mm-hmm. right? We have a concept of popular posts. So every day we create the top 100 posts from around the country mm-hmm. and we put them back into the newsfeed so that people, it's not hyper-local content, but it's kind of inspirational content. Look what this person did. Like mm-hmm. something small like... I bought groceries for the person standing in front of me in the grocery line. Mm-hmm. And if you just kept that going, you know, just think how beautiful something. Or I bought a coffee for someone in the yeah. in the local coffee shop. I, you know, through COVID, we saw people really shopping local. Like 71% of people said, I'm making it an imperative for me to go spend money locally. Mm-hmm. Not just because I can get what I need, but frankly, because those local businesses are people. Mm-hmm. Those are people in my community. I want my community to stay vibrant. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do some extraordinary things. Like I was buying groceries from my local restaurant. Mm-hmm. Not super efficient, definitely not particularly cost effective, mm-hmm. but important because they are two people who have kids who were in preschool with me who mm-hmm. are in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And they're a big part of the family that makes up my town. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pivot over to some of these leadership questions. Sure. All right, here's a question for you. If you were interviewing different CEOs 
mm-hmm. to lead next door, how would you try to get insight into how they would manage and lead? So I feel like I do that every day, by the way, <laughs> because anyone who joins Nextdoor should, in my mind, have full ability to become the CEO of this whole mothership that mm-hmm. we're on. Um, and I really do believe great ideas come from everywhere in a company and that companies die when they start to ossify and have hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So I want everyone. We have a core value called act like an owner. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what personifies. Like I don't really love titles, but I guess the CEOs maybe can be thought of like the owner in some people's context. Yeah. I think everyone should be acting that way every day. Yeah. So how do I get under the hood of that? Yeah. Um, number one is I ask everyone, how do you invest in community? Right. It's our after earn trust, invest in community is our second core value. Mm-hmm. And it can't be faked, right? You know, a lot of, you know, I've seen both sides. On the negative, we got very, very close on a candidate to be a country manager for us, like an incredibly important role because they're mm-hmm. almost, they are the entrepreneur, the founder of the country. And, mm-hmm. they, and their personality is going to seep into what next door becomes in that country. Mm-hmm. And he was brilliant. Like he checked all the boxes. He had worked at companies, started in country. Mm-hmm. And he responded to that question by saying, you know, I just haven't really had time yet, but it's incredibly important to me. And that's why I'm here interviewing with you. Mm-hmm. And in my head, all I could think of was like, it's just not important to you. Because <laughs> right. if things are important to you, you make time for them. And they just happen to you. Like you can't help yourself. Right. So that's where it actually acts in the, the negative. Mm-hmm. I think in the positive, right, they're just for some people, you don't even have to ask the question because almost out of the gate, they are telling you what their experience is, hopefully with next door, because that's why they're excited to be talking to you, but broadly in their communities and why community is important to them. Mm-hmm. So that's probably my number one. I'm checking to see, you know, do you align with our purpose? Mm-hmm. Because it's not for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Plenty of people have other things that get them really excited in life. Right. I subscribe to this framework, Ikigai. It's kind of these four overlapping circles that if you can find the spot where you are do what you love, what you're good at, what mm-hmm. the world needs and what you can get paid for because mm-hmm. you're not being paid. It's a hobby. Mm-hmm. You're in flow. And if you're in flow, work is not like work. Work is, in fact, you probably run a bit like me, a little in danger of being a workaholic because you just love it. You're so excited about it. Mm-hmm. It comes from this idea of the blue zones around the world where people live these incredibly long lifespans mm-hmm. because work's not putting stress on their body. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I'm looking for those four quadrants when I'm talking to people. Mm-hmm. Do they understand what they love and what they're good at, but do they also understand how it'll impact the world? So how do you do that for yourself, either for you or mm-hmm. for others? Is there a process to sort of go through an exercise to look at that? Yeah. Way, you yeah. know, it's Because so, so many times in life we kind of go with the flow, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, I've got a job here. This is what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and you don't take that time just like engaging in community mm-hmm. to really do that work. So what, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, life can just happen to you and keep happening to you, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think you actually have to explicitly stop. I force myself in the same way with our company, right? We do an annual plan. So we have an annual planning cycle and then we do a quarterly check-in. Mm-hmm. So if you were to pull my phone, I have a little set of notes, which are what are my literally OKRs. I'm kind of embarrassed that I keep them for myself <laughs> for the year. Yeah. And I do them actually right at the end of the company's annual planning process. We take the last usually 10 days or whatever, the whole company shuts down on the year. Mm -hmm. And I get away, 
and I get out into the wilds and I go running or skiing. I get to hang out with my family. Mm -hmm. We eat like a huge dinner for the holiday. And then I always try to create a day where I just have time to myself with my notebook and a pen. So nothing electronic. Mm -hmm. So I can't get distracted. And I just really try to write down in sections what's important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Physical health is really important to me. So what are my goals for physical health? Mental health. Um, I love to read, for example. There's my family. So what are my my kids love it because we do a little talk around the dining room table. What's everyone's goals for the year? <laughs> they must really enjoy. They that love yeah. that process. <laughs> um, but you know, you joke about it, but actually, it's a really good way to get the family all on the same page of what's going to be important that year, right? Mm-hmm. I know. That, you know, for my kids were little, like if my daughter really cared about me coming to the school play or my son really wanted me at that particular soccer game, mm-hmm. nothing could get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a way of helping them understand that they are very important and the things that they tell me are a priority will be the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can have then very strong professional goals too. And sometimes that might be, okay, I haven't found my flow spot. So this year I am going to really think seriously about a different career Mm -hmm. or a different job. Mm -hmm. And you have to force yourself to take the time because the easy path is just getting along to get along. Oh, yeah, which is easy to do. I mean, do you usually start that process with your personal goals? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I start... I go myself first, mm-hmm. which might feel a little selfish, but it's a good way to ground me and it just takes me mm-hmm. kind of the next circle out would be kind of family, friends, mm-hmm. things that I really want to make sure I'm keeping a connection. I still have super strong friendships back in Northern Ireland with like my girlfriends from high school, actually from like being a baby on. Mm-hmm. And it's if I don't make the time to go see them once a year or do something with them, you know, easily years could go by, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's important. And then the work context. And that usually start with, you know, to me, next door is first right now. Mm-hmm. And it has to be, then I have my board or boards mm-hmm. and then some of the more philanthropic nonprofit things. Mm-hmm. And it's not perfectly balanced at any point in time. You mm-hmm. have spikes and the worst is when you get like spike in three things and you're really, you know, you can get in the zones where you're like, wow, I'm not really optimized for anyone right now. But right. generally speaking, I think when you have a good framework, you can actually be quite explicit about your time and helping someone understand they're not getting all your time right now, but that don't worry, that's coming because this thing will end and then you're going to pivot mm-hmm. and give them the full force of attention. You know, it's such a simple thing to take a few minutes to write that yes. stuff down. Yeah. And it's so critical and it's so easy not to do. Totally. So it's great that you know at this time of year, mm-hmm. you know, that's helpful to know I'm going to do it yeah. at this time. Yeah. So you know you've got it carved out and you're going to do it. I know it's coming. Everyone knows when mom's <laughs> about to go into her room. <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, last question I have is if you had to choose another profession, what mm-hmm. would it be and why? <laughs> that is such a – it's a really hard question and I don't mean to sound trite because I love what I do. Mm-hmm. And so I don't – like that in that Ikigai framework, I actually feel very aligned and balanced. So mm-hmm. I – love what I do. I'm good at what I do. I think it's what the world needs Mm -hmm. categorically and I can get paid for it. So the four are aligning for me. Mm -hmm. I, in being asked this question before, I think I have two other big loves in life. I love to travel Mm -hmm. and I actually love to climb mountains. I, you know, have gone up Kilimanjaro. I've done a bunch of mountains down in South America. 
there's not, you know, if you need to find me any time at the weekend, you'll find me somewhere on Mount Tam. Mm-hmm. And so I've often thought, like, if I really took a step back, would I go and do some serious mountain climbing somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to get paid for that. I suppose yes, you could. Yes, exactly. Get, I'd have to get sponsored. A, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Sherpa, I suppose. Exactly. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor, recorded last year at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit in Washington, D.C. Next week, don't miss our episode on Web3 and crypto. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce Studios, produced by Rachel Levin, and recording and editing from Ryan Kleeman and Michelle Leung, and digital strategy from Courtney Eltinge. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. <laughs>